the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022, less than a week before the election takes place. I am Seth Liebson, and the number is 602-508-0960. That's 602-508-0960. Our text today begins with a reading from the New York Times. The title of the article, quote, Top Dems question party's strategy as midterm worries grow, close quote. This story has three reporters, which I guess is the full employment strategy for some of these newspapers. But one thought might be if they are losing so much money, if they're losing so much money, why are they putting so many reporters on each story? You'd be amazed how much we do here. We broadcast, write, publish and investigate with a really small staff around here. But then again, Less chance to get things so monumentally or repeatedly or groupthinkedly wrong. Anyway, the first sentence in the article is this, quote, Top Democratic officials, lawmakers and strategists are openly second guessing their party's campaign pitch and tactics, reflecting a growing sense that Democrats have failed to coalesce around one effective message with enough time to stave off major losses in the House and possibly decisive defeats in the tightly contested Senate, close quote. The article is accompanied by a photograph of three women at an abortion rights protest, showing each of them with their signs. Stop the Republican steal of our freedoms is the main one, written in pink. For two years, the liberal left has plastered the entire Republican Party as a misbegotten galamafri of people yelling, stop the steal. Because one should not, one dare not question the legitimacy of a governmental process or institution, so long as that governmental process or institution results in left-wing Democratic Party desiderata. Make movies and engage efforts to question and stop and claim illegitimate two presidential elections of George W. Bush and one of Donald Trump. Heck, make a national spokeswoman and double candidate for governor of a woman still claiming her last loss to a Republican in Georgia was stolen. But if Republicans question any left-wing Democratic Party outcomes, we shall call it treason. How good, by the way, does anyone of any party think it is? How smart does anyone of any party think it is to claim a vote from the Supreme Court overturning a case even liberal scholars said was infirm at best for years? How smart is it to then delegitimize the entire Supreme Court? the top of an entire branch of government, claiming what it did in a routine case, the likes of which get filed every year, illegitimate. That's what Democratic members of Congress called the Supreme Court after the Dobbs decision, going so far as to even ignore and, if the press secretary to the president, justify illegal threats on Supreme Court justices, ignoring and refusing to condemn assassination attempts on them, this would be after the Democratic Senate majority leader screamed to a crowd in front of the Supreme Court two conservative justices' names and said they have brought the whirlwind and we are coming for you and you won't know what hit you. 
Last night, Joe Biden was in Florida campaigning for Charlie Crist, and he said this, quote, if we don't move on, deal with the state and local officials. You know, there are 350 deniers, Charlie, 350 people on the ballot, on the Republican ballot, from everything from state house races to the secretary of state to governors to senators, et cetera, 350, close quote. Does Joe Biden have any idea how much he sounds like Joe McCarthy in what was considered one of the most irresponsible speeches in political history in Wheeling, West Virginia in 1950, when everyone who knows anything about Joe McCarthy knows he said, quote, I have in my hand here a list of 205 communists, a number that kept changing with names nobody could produce. Does he have any idea how much he sounds like that? Now, is anyone asking what Biden means we're going to have to deal with them? It sounds a bit intimidating, but regardless of that, 350 deniers, what shall we do? I imagine in a more mature world, we could do what we did with all the Democrats who denied and challenged the 2000 election and the 2004 election and those celebrated for doing so in Michael Moore's movie and all the denial and claims of illegitimacy from Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and Jimmy Carter and those Hollywood actors led by Martin Sheen who put out a public video for electors to switch their vote in 2017 so as to install Hillary Clinton. A mature society might do something along the lines of what it did with those very famous and well-known election deniers, which is nothing. And why was nothing the right response in all those cases? Because they were tales told by whatever you want to call them, signifying nothing. They had no power to do anything about it. What they did later was gin up impeachment over foreign policy and cast shadows and claims to make legitimate the denial of legitimacy. But aside from poisoning the air and making our country more divided, the what shall we do question is appropriately answered by politics. Work harder and defeat them harder. But no. In the instant case where Republicans are or could be victorious, we shall lambast them as illegitimate threats to democracy, throwing around speciously casuistic McCarthyite charges, embracing, knowingly or unknowingly, the exact specter of civil liberties curtailment they still want us to take seriously for their own partisan success based on fear and anathematizing. Anyway, back to that opening sentence in the New York Times story. I'll repeat it. Quote, top Democratic officials, lawmakers and strategists are openly second guessing their party's campaign pitch and tactics, reflecting a growing sense that Democrats have failed to coalesce around one effective message with enough time to stave off major losses in the House and possibly decisive defeats in the tightly contested Senate. Well, we warned them. We warned that weaponizing the FBI against partisan opponents was un-American. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned that Orwellian disinformation boards were un-American. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned that closing schools to soothe paranoiac anxieties of adults would have baleful effects in education and mental health. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them that censoring us in those warnings was un-American. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them they were only looking at one silo of expertise that had a lot of unresolved questions and shoddy foundations to effectuate the most massive social and economic change America has seen since World War II. 
They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them they should not use a public health crisis for political purposes and weaponize the issues of responsibility and science. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them that shaming our children for their American. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them that sexualizing our children was abuse and abusive. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them not to stand between parents and their children on the most sacrosanct of parental and children's rights. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them that defending and arguing for men to compete on women's teams and go into women's and girls' locker rooms and bathrooms was perverse and unfair and confusing. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them that their Martinet adherence to unrestricted abortion rights to the point of and during birth was inhumane and extreme. They did it and doubled down on it anyway and called our position extreme. We warned them their rhetoric about the Dobbs decision was untrue and people would ultimately see the political gamesmanship of it. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them that violence in the streets should and could not be defended over racial or any other grievances. They did it and doubled down on it anyway, going so far as justifying it and saying people will do what people will do and telling Supreme Court justices they won't know what hit them if they don't vote the right way. We warned them that the drug crisis was growing along with the crime crisis. They ignored it and came up with policies to exacerbate both problems, marginalizing and again anathematizing anyone who argued contrary with traditional common sense. We warned them that allowing our streets to be near permanently occupied by mentally ill drug addicts was the opposite of compassion and would lead to more crime and more violence. They did it and doubled down on it anyway. We warned them that saying to vote for a Republican is to vote against democracy as they have been wailing for several weeks was un-American, just as saying Republicans are fascists and that black Republicans are traitors to white supremacy was bigoted. They did it. And doubled down on it anyway. And here they now sit with three New York Times reporters required to warn their readers that somehow the Democratic Party messaging isn't working. Well, it was all so unnecessary. But listening to the president last night and today, they are still going to do it all and double down on it anyway. Fine and dandy as far as I'm concerned. In a week, they'll get the message of what American principles are. And that the American people are not quite ready just yet to accept everything liberalism, small l liberalism, and republicanism, small r republicanism, and democracy, small d democracy, and constitutionalism truly stand athwart. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-5080-960. We'll be right back. Are you concerned with stock market volatility? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. And there is no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. Enter my friends Y-Refi, who are offering an investment in a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. It's a due diligence-approved firm, and you can earn up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 
10 and a quarter percent. Just go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. That's investyrefi.com or 888-YREFI-34. Our friend uh, George Kaloff tweeted this. Um, Every time I think it can't get worse, it does. (laughs) Katie Hobbs is who we're talking about. Um, She's a little better than Fetterman, but not that much better. She keeps walking into this. The reporters will not let her up on it. And she hasn't figured out a better way to answer it other than I'm not in charge here, I guess. Something like that. Don Lemon uh, on CNN, who I guess has done a couple average to OK interviews uh, with some Democrats of late in his new CNN position, uh, had this uh, going on with Katie Hobbs. Uh, I guess this was yesterday. I'm not debate your opponent. If you believe your opponent is, you know, has issues in the spreading conspiracy theories, about a stolen election and so on, and it's not being truthful with the, the people of Arizona, why then not get on the debate stage and, and debate her? You know, not only is Carrie Lake, has she centered her entire platform around this election denialism, um, I didn't want to give her a bigger stage to do that. But additionally, she has shown that she's not interested in having any kind of substantive conversation. Um, she's only interested in creating a spectacle. But and I didn't you, want to If you were in the same space with her, wouldn't you be? Wouldn't it be easier to knock it down in front of everyone, in front of the most people? Because you're not stopping her from spreading yeah. whatever you believe that you know, she is I, spreading by not debating her. She can go on television. She can talk about it. She can go in front of the the people of Arizona every single day and talk about it. But you're not confronting her on it. It seems like it would be an easy fix if you stood up on a debate stage and and confronted her about these issues. Look, we're six days out from the election, and our campaign strategy is our campaign strategy. So we're moving forward. I'm continuing to make my case to the voters of Arizona. Uh, Whether or not uh, we debate it in this race is not going to decide this election. So, um, you know, I just, we made a decision, didn't want to be a part of her spectacle, and she's not... Uh, she she won't answer these tough questions um, to to real reporters. She only talks but, to fake. But Secretary, news it's not just her that you won't debate. You also did not debate your Democratic primary opponent, Marco Lopez. Why? And have you ever? I was, have you I was, ever? I was miles ahead of him. I was miles ahead of him. So I was miles don't... ahead of him in the race and one handily. It's a totally different situation here. Well, it's it's not debating at your opponent again. Have you ever debated your opponent running for political yes, office? I yes, I have. Why do you think it wasn't important for people to see a debate in this election for governor at all? Uh in the primary, I was focused on the general election. I was miles ahead of my op- opponent. I won handily. Um, it wasn't an issue. Um, we're six days from the election, and uh, this is this is the decision we made. So, <laughs> this is the decision we made. So, yeah, she can't explain it, and she's getting worse and worse. The only thing I was waiting for her to say, which I guess she ditched, because um, I guess if you're, I, I don't know, I guess I, I guess it wasn't working. The only line that I had seen her use about three or four times in the past was the debate over debates is over. Um, it, it, it's not for her to say that. Uh, she doesn't get to decide that. 
And uh, it's, I guess, okay in her own head if she thinks that she's running a general election in a primary campaign and doesn't have to debate her primary opponent because she's way ahead. But think about what that means uh, going forward, Democratic Party. Think about what that means going forward, Democratic Party. As long as you're winning, you don't need to debate. As long as that that's that's the Katie Hobbs standard. If you're up in the polls, you don't need to debate. Think about what that would mean at the presidential level. Think about what that would mean in Senate levels, at the Senate races and the House race levels. Think about what that would mean everywhere. It's not a justification. She is, in her own mind, a justification looking for justifications that quiet people down and shut them up and stop asking her difficult questions. This nonsense about Carrie Lake not taking difficult questions. Carrie Lake has said, anytime, anywhere, I'll let you write the questions. She said, I will let you write the questions anytime, anywhere. Of course, the jig is up here. And we all know what this is about, don't we? We all know what it's about. We know that Carrie Lake is going to smack Katie Hobbs and smack her really hard on November 8th. And that Katie Hobbs cannot speak her way out of a paper bag. This is someone who literally runs, literally, not figuratively, literally runs away from journalists. This is someone who hides in a bathroom to avoid journalists. This is someone who knocks over sodas she can't get away from the journalist fast enough to avoid their question. This is a walking disaster. And this race, I mean, look, you know me, I'm not I'm I'm not I'm not at all ever going to count counsel resting on laurels and Carrie Lake is not. But the, this this race is it's either over or it's going to be the greatest embarrassment Arizona ever engaged in if they if they if if they if if the polls are wrong and she does happen to win. This is this is a this is a person who is unqualified to be governor. I think she's unqualified to be secretary of state. I don't know how this happened in the first place, but but keep this in mind. Secretary of state, that office is number it's effectively our lieutenant governor. So she has been the person one step away. From the governor's office, should, God forbid, uh, Doug Ducey uh, ever have anything wrong or have to vacate the office. This is a big wake-up call. There are no down-ballot races. Take every race seriously. Make sure you vote in every race where you possibly can. And if you don't know what you're voting for or against, educate yourselves or don't vote that line. But don't take anything for granted at all, ever, including races you think might not matter. They all matter. That's how the left took control of all our institutions. They saw things that we thought were little. They made them big. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, whose website is grandcanyonplanning.com. It's a fun and bright website, grandcanyonplanning.com. He's also the host of his own radio show right here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. Well, John, how are you? You called it. You called it yesterday. Yeah. Uh, the headline at the Wall Street Journal Online I'm reading 
Stocks sink after Powell signals need for more rate rises. You said you said this this is what we better be prepared for. Yeah, I figured it'd be a volatile volatile day today. Yeah, and we did. You know, initially it's interesting because initially there was the uh, you know the first comments that came out uh, basically saying that they're doing the three quarter percent hike, which I think everyone expected. Uh, but then they hinted that maybe there's going to be a change in policy ahead. That was the, kind of the the, the thought. Uh, but then further comments, and that that actually sent the market moving higher. But then further comments a little bit uh, later in the day, about a half hour later, uh, was that hey, we're we're going to be on this path. We're going to continue on this path, and uh, don't be surprised if there's more rate hikes ahead. So uh, all of a sudden, the market didn't like that, and. Uh, here we go. Down 500 points on the Dow today. John, do you get questions along the lines of, um, uh, and if you don't, let me give you it, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then you give the answer. But do you get questions along the lines of, you know, things do seem so very volatile over the past several months? Is it more the news or is it more the reality? We, we've, in other words, is is this a strangely volatile time, or is it not as volatile as as maybe all the news would? which does have a tendency to exacerbate situations, as all the news is making it seem. Well, there are a few people in this country who can make a comment and actually change the market, okay. right? And yeah. the Fed is yeah. one of them. We've no talked about, about yeah, it. Yeah, I right? think you and I could name three or four. But sure. Yeah, right. So uh, it is not uncommon. This is uh, something that over the decades we've seen, uh, history has you know shown us that there are certain periods of time with extreme volatility. And so it's... It's not an everyday occurrence, and, and, and so sometimes it makes people a little bit uncomfortable. I, I was, I'm, I'm talking about this, too, over the weekend on my show, which is going to be, you know, over decades of time, if we look back at the history, uh, we see these ups and downs in the market. But if we look at a point, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago even, where the market was to where it is today, even with this, the correction that has occurred this year, the markets have risen substantially during these extreme periods of volatility and economic downturns. Uh, so this is a moment in time right now, and we have to look at it as a short-term blip in the long-term vision of what is to come. You know, two, three, four, five years, ten years from now, where's the market going to be? And mm-hmm. where is your portfolio going to be mm-hmm. if you're invested properly? Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, it's not uncommon, Seth, uh, and I just think people have to – it's difficult, but try your best to take emotion out of it and work closely with your financial advisor. Yeah, as I was asking the question, I mean, it kind of dawned on me that the media is always, uh, on almost every story, making things uh, more alarming than they actually are. Right. And why would that be any different in financial news or financial reporting? It turns out it probably isn't. I it's, mean, it probably isn't. Yeah, it probably just follows the same, after all journalistic uh, thing. It might be fun to think about. I mean, three or four people, I guess, who who just by what they say can change the, the market. The Fed, obviously, and mm-hmm. uh, Jerome Powell there. Jamie Dimon, would he would he be in that category? Someone uh, like Jamie Dimon? You no, know, possibly. Could maybe, you we know. We don't want to give him any ideas. Yeah. No, but I mean, he's made some comments that, you know, he's he's been pretty pessimistic here most recently. And uh, there have been others out there who have, uh, you know, felt just the opposite of, of what he's saying. Uh, you know, that's still a wait-and-see type of a thing on, on what's to come. We don't know in the next you know few months. We've got an election next week. We've got, hey, Twitter came out and apparently yep. caught some kind of a, uh, you know, uh, maybe an exaggeration in the uh, – 
the president, I don't know if you saw that today. Yes, I uh, did. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to talk about it, but I thought it was yeah. pretty humorous. Yeah. You know? I'm just sitting back, and I just want this Elon Musk thing, like probably you do with this volatility thing. Yeah. I'm just, I just want to kind of let it play itself out. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure quite what to make of everything. There are days when I say, man, you're really doing the right thing. And then yeah. there are days when I'm saying, man, you really aren't. <laughs> and so, um, look, we... The main point is, if, yeah, if, if we're going to be dependent on a free speech platform on, on one billionaire immigrant, we're going to be in trouble. We've yes, we got to figure course. this thing out. There's going to yeah. be others out yeah. there. There's got to be other, yeah. other yeah. means. Yeah. J.D., you're the best. You bet. Thank you, Seth. Uh, Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Henry Pick and an investment advisor, Green King and Plenty Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Bless Thank you, you, sir. All right. Good. Bye. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-5089-60. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Every Wednesday, we check in with our constitutional um, expert uh, and attorney, Brett Johnson. He is a partner with the Snell and Wilmer Law Firm based here in Phoenix, nation's uh, offices across the nation. SWLaw.com is their website, SWLaw.com. Brett, thanks for joining us. How are you, man? Busy times, huh? Busy times. Thanks for having me, Seth. Always, always love having you, uh, as does the audience. So thank you for doing this for us. I um I I if there's one area in the law that I I just I live in Brett to the degree that I do and not as a lawyer, it's the issues around race and uh, I I don't know if it just had to do with the civil rights ethic I grew up in in my own house but it's it's always consumed me and so we have talked before about this lawsuit um, against Harvard and the University of North Carolina on using race as a factor in admissions. And um, yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, Monday, we got the oral argument on this case. And I think a lot was exposed. You've certainly uh, been following it. What did you see coming out of that oral argument? Yeah, I, I, I see that change is coming. Um, so if I was a university admissions uh, department right now, I would be getting ready for to try to find other, other race-neutral activities to try to meet their diversity needs. Uh, as, as a way of background for, for your listeners, uh, this, this same organization brought two different cases that consolidated at the Supreme Court. It was students versus fair admissions versus Harvard, mm-hmm. and students versus fair and, uh, of for fair admissions versus the University of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, the two cases kind of addressed similar issues. The Harvard case really concentrated on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which basically bans racial discrimination. Um, and then the, the University of North Carolina case, because the University of North Carolina is a state institution, concentrated on both Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which also um, discusses, um, you know, banning, banning uh, racial discrimination. So that is the two frameworks. But even going back in history, right, we, again, always bring things back to, to Arizona and Justice O'Connor, um, who, you know, the first, first woman on the Supreme Court from Arizona. And, uh, and she gave the, the, the ruling that everybody's kind of criticizing right now, which is, which is Grutter versus Bollinger, right? And that dealt with uh, the University of Michigan School of Law case. And what I wanted to bring back to that history was when she basically reaffirmed, and, and it was only a 5-4 majority, by the way, and all of these cases have been 5-4 probably until now. Um, what she said is in 25 years, 
this should not be an issue anymore and that we have to go race neutral. And so that, that both sides picked up on that quote from Justice O'Connor and to say, hey, we're almost at the 25-year mark and nothing's changed in regard to university admissions. So just putting in a historical context to you. You know, it's, um, it's, it's an important one because that would have been something like almost 20 years ago, right? Um, that's, that's right. And, and, and nothing has changed. But one thing might have, um, and then I want to, well, let me do it this way. Before I, yeah, let me just ask the question. I'll just ask the question. <laughs> I'll just ask the question. Um, the court might have changed. And so all of these cases from Bakke in 1977, 78 going forward, it's it's I was talking to someone about this yesterday. You know, it's there's a lot of concurrences and dissents in part and concurring in part that really make it hard to read these race based admissions cases under the guise of affirmative action since about 1978. It's really hard to to count where the vote is after the decision is rendered. We may not have that anymore. We may not have 5-4 on this one, given the court's makeup right now. That's correct. Most likely you're going to have a 6-3, because I I would imagine, um, as I've said before, the Chief Justice, when the Chief Justice is in the majority, Chief Justice gets to write the majority opinion. And even when the Chief Justice is not in the majority, it it, uh, goes to the most senior justice, which would be Justice Thomas. Yeah. And I would imagine... They're the two most ardent against this stuff, have been, I think. They are, but I think that Justice Thomas would even take it further and, and really actually lay down a marker for other areas outside of education. I think Chief Justice Roberts would want to just narrow it at least to the situation that we have here and let other issues, um, such as, you know, in, in the argument, for example, they brought up the military, they brought up marriage, mm-hmm. they brought up jury selection mm-hmm. and how race is neutral and all of those requ- requirements now. And I think Justice Thomas would be saying, we're done with these yeah. cases. Don't, 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 don't apply a race um, basis for anything. I think Chief Justice Roberts would, will narrow it to this case. It will still have ramifications, though, if Chief Justice Roberts does that, and um, as even Justice Kagan and Justice Jackson were, were very argumentative in what I've said here before, is you have to look at sometimes the dissent yep. to see where the case law is going to be going. Yep. And, and if I'm an admissions office, I'd look at, at, at the potential dissent. Obviously, we don't know it yet. But in that case, what they said is, is that, hey, then you have to get rid of uh, uh, alumni, mm-hmm. um, benefits to alumni's mm-hmm. children, mm-hmm. because back in the day, if you, especially if you have four or five generations of family, that was when it was obviously race discrimination. So if you're saying race-based neutral, then you have to get away away from a lot of other, quote-unquote, factors that you lead to admission. So look for, actually, the more interesting part of the case what might be the dissent. That's really interesting. And you could even there see perhaps a concurrence with some of the majority as long as the dissent is on that point. I, if, if we're going to be race neutral, I could see a dissenting judge say, if we're going to be I, I agree with John Roberts on Section 1A2. And furthermore, we would need to get rid of other things that lead to race, non-race neutral policies like like legacy admissions. Right. Yeah, you could and- see that. You could see that. And, you know, what was pushed by uh, Seth Waxman, who represented Harvard and the Solicitor General of the United States, as well as the Solicitor General of North Carolina, which they kept on pushing was, don't make this a constitutional issue, i.e. Justice um, Thomas. Just Let's just uh, concentrate on the statute, right. which is Title VI, right. and we'll be able to use that. 
And what they kept on pointing at is is that you just make it more strict, and basically you have to have a better government reason to do so. Mm-hmm. I think they're seeing the tea leaves here. Yeah. And one that uh, that uh, Justice Jackson kept on pushing was the military, mm-hmm. that there is a need for, for race um, base. Um, it, bringing people from different races into the military, that it's not overly one race or above another, especially in the officer corps. Mm-hmm. And even Chief Justice Roberts said, hey, we're not talking about the military yeah. academies here, because that might go above and beyond and have that strict scrutiny need for a governmental purpose. Yeah, so, there's always a national security strict scrutiny measure that wouldn't apply typically. Um, right. Is, that's, that's what yeah, I say. Yeah, you know, there's always yeah. a national security reason, yeah. and there's a, sol- a military solution for everything. Right, or compelling yeah. t- compelling interest maybe would be the better way for me to phrase it. Brett, yeah. the, the other question that was kind of th- flying around my, my head is, could the court, or could you see a scenario in which the court distinguishes between the two uh, respondents here? Harvard, after all, being a private institution, UNC being a public institution. Now, of course, Harvard takes public, you know, gets government yeah, grants. Exactly. And stuff, but could you see, or, or do you think that, that, that nullifies the possibility of a distinctive decision. This is where I don't think that that's going to nullify because of the federal money yeah, issue okay, in t- okay. Title VI. Yeah. And, and, and even the justices agree that the language from Title VI is basically the 14th Amendment, where I think that there's going to be possibly a little bit of a sliver of hope is that the universities have kept on pushing this whole diversity concept, that we need this to format education and ensure we don't have groupthink. Ironically, Justice Thomas said that's exactly what the segregationists also argued. I thought that was an interesting line when they were pushing that. But in in this case, it was a diversity one. But if there is a real reason um, for for race-based selection Mm -hmm. um, that's not for purposes of diversity, but basically to overcome racism Mm -hmm. or overcome those... And, and the, the university can prove that, then that's going to probably be enough for for that purpose. But using it for purposes of diversity only yeah. is, is not. And you and I have talked about before is is that diversity is really in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, a lot and Thomas said diverse- that, right? He said that in open it, argument. He said it, it can mean anything to anyone, right? It did, and it could also mean that the doctors and lawyers who all have kids and that they're minorities and got every single privilege that right. a white kid got, right. they're they're getting in, and 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 so that's one of what when I think Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were pushing right. was you can do this based off of economics. Yeah, if it's we, really for that reason, yeah, then you we didn't fight a civil war over that one, right? It, it, that's exactly yeah. one of the comments that uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts yeah. wrote. Right. So not over oboes and not over economics. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was a pretty funny line. Yeah. Brett Johnson, you're the best, my man. Thank you for straightening us out always, every week. We love it. No problem. Thank you. You bet. I have a feeling next week we're going to keep you busy. I have a feeling. Just something tells yeah, me next be, Wednesday. might need to be a longer session. Hopefully, uh, we may, have to, we may have to drag you away from the uh, mothership and, and come in here and just calm us all down. Brett Johnson, <laughs> you're the best. SWLaw.com, Snell and Wilmer Law Former. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. As inflation rises and your dollars are stretched thinner, more people are considering a reverse mortgage. And I would like to showcase Bingo Reverse Mortgage and tell you how their trusted team can take some of the guesswork out of what they do and what benefits inure to you. Bottom line, a reverse mortgage allows you to convert equity in your home into cash or to purchase a home. To qualify, you must be a homeowner, at least 55 years old, and have sufficient equity in your home. 
A reverse mortgage can be your ace in the hole when it comes to actually retiring instead of dreaming of retirement. Fact is, most Americans won't be able to retire. Bingo Reverse Mortgage is saving the American retirement. Get the safety net you deserve and call the incredible bingo team at 928-277-4476. It's 928-277-4476. That is an Arizona number. Or visit bingoreversemortgage.com. Tell them I sent you and get a free appraisal reimbursed at closing a $1,000 value. Bingo, reversemortgage.com. Yeah, I, you know, it's any number of uh, great lines in Supreme Court uh, dicta and history that get to the heart and soul of what this country really should be about. I like Justice Kennedy's in talking about these race preference uh, cases and, and, um, and uh, legacy issues that Brett Johnson and I were just talking about. Justice Kennedy put it, when the state assigns benefits on the basis of race, it engages in the offensive and demeaning assumption that beneficiaries of a particular race, because of their race, think alike, share the same political interests, and will prefer the same candidates at the polls. Race-based assignments embody stereotypes that treat individuals as the product of their race, evaluating their thoughts and efforts, their very worth as citizens, according to a criterion barred to the government by history and the Constitution, I would add, and morality. I'm Seth Leibson. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 